Our Bible reading this evening will be taken from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,354. Then after we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also read from our Belgic Confession, article 34, and you can find this in the Forms and Prayers book on page 190. We're coming to uh, near the end of our Belgic Confession, having considered article by article as we receive this document, this confession, as a faithful summary of the Word of God. We do not hold it on the same level as the Word of God. We believe only the Bible to be inspired and infallible and inerrant, but we do receive our three confessions as well as our three creeds as faithful summaries of the teachings of the Word of God, and we use them uh, in our sermons to guide us as we expound the doctrines, the truths that are revealed within the Word of God. We come this evening as we continue to consider the sacraments to the sacrament of baptism, and so we've chosen to read from Colossians 2, beginning at verse 11 uh, through verse 15. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, "...in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Article 34 is quite a lengthy article entitled, The Sacrament of Baptism, And it states, we believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood, which anyone might do or wish to do in order to atone or satisfy for sins. Having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions that we may be dedicated entirely to him, bearing his mark and sign. It also witnesses to us that he will be our God forever, since he is our gracious Father. Therefore he has commanded that all those who belong to him be baptized with pure water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this way he signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it is poured on us, And also is seen on the body of the baptized, when it is sprinkled on him, so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from its sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. This does not happen by the physical water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible, 
But our Lord gives what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man and stripping off the old with all its works. For this reason, we believe that anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once, without ever repeating it, for we cannot be born twice. Yet this baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. For that reason, we detest the heir of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism once received, and also, this is referring to the Anabaptist, condemn the baptism of the children of believers. We believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And truly, Christ has shed his blood no less for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, just as the Lord commanded in the law that by offering a lamb for them, the sacrament of the suffering and death of Christ would be granted them shortly after their birth. This was the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, baptism does for our children what circumcision did for the Jewish people. That is why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have a most peculiar identity. You find individuals talking about that in our culture identity, and also an awareness of one's self-identity. Uh, you find perhaps especially young people wrestling through with the questions, who am I? Where do I belong? I would submit to you this evening that the Christian faith has the most simple and yet profound answer. Our identity is bound up in Jesus Christ. And our identity is bound up in the sacrament of baptism. I had a former elder. He's no longer my elder in the sense that he belongs to my former congregation. And he knew his covenant theology very, very well. And as his, I believe, ten children were growing up, he would often say to them, remember who you are, and remember whose you are. And when they came into their teenage years, he would echo that, I'm told, as they would go out uh, for whatever activity. Good, legitimate activities, but just activities. As they were leaving, his final words to them would be, remember who you are, and remember whose you are. You are a Christian. That is the basic identity of the people of God. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? You belong to Christ. You have been baptized into Christ. 
Now, just reflect upon your week gone past, your Mondays through your Saturday. As I reflect also upon my week gone past, how often was that, that reality of our identity in the forefront of our conscious awareness? To put the question more simply, how often this past week did you think to yourself, I have been baptized. I am a Christian. I belong to Christ. And also, as we've made our plans for the week that lies ahead, and as we anticipate some of the events that perhaps fill our week that lies ahead, did we do so with a conscious, again, awareness of our self-identity? I am a Christian. I have been baptized. It was quite common when I was growing up to hear the statement, don't ever forget you have a baptized forehead. I can remember when I was quite young, at one point, looking in the mirror at my forehead, trying to see what it was on my forehead that displayed my baptism. To me, it looked like any other forehead, by and large. I didn't really understand the significance of that statement. You have a baptized forehead. And the danger is that these wonderful truths that are signified and sealed unto us in our baptism are forgotten because of our own ignorance. And to hopefully serve as an antidote towards that ignorance, we want to consider this evening our belief concerning Christian baptism. You notice that the article is very, very lengthy, and there is a lot of profitable material contained in Article 34. Uh, to use the analogy, uh, perhaps that will be relatable to some, uh, if you aim at everything, you'll miss everything. So it's not our purpose tonight to try to say something about everything in Article 34. But our aim is to remind us of the rich privileges that belong to us who are truly baptized into Jesus Christ. We want to do so by considering, first of all, the symbolism of Christian baptism, and then secondly, the significance of Christian baptism, and then thirdly, the subjects of Christian baptism. So our belief concerning Christian baptism, first of all, what do we believe about the symbolism Secondly, what do we believe about the significance? And then thirdly, what do we believe about the subjects of Christian baptism? So first of all, the symbolism is quite clear. It symbolizes, Christian baptism does, the shed blood and the spiritual cleansing. And of course, these two go together, but we dare not invert them. We dare not talk about spiritual cleansing apart from the shed blood. So the first thing that ought to be on the forefront of our minds and our understanding when we think of baptism is shed blood. We looked last week at the reality that sacraments are divinely instituted, uh, that God Himself sets apart earthly elements to symbolize spiritual truths. And so the water, the water that is so essential in the ritual or the sacrament of baptism, has a symbolic function, and it serves to symbolize or to represent the shed blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now there is a danger, I believe, in preaching of being unnecessarily repetitive. 
But there also is the truth that in teaching, sometimes it is beneficial to be repetitive. And I believe that in preaching also, there is a legitimate repetitiveness, and one aspect of legitimate repetitiveness is emphasizing the vital, central role of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we make no apologies for again tonight emphasizing uh, that the water of baptism points forward to the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the only means by which there can be reconciliation between a sinner and God. The only means. And this was foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament, you have to acknowledge that it is a bloody testament. I mean, at times you read about the endless flow of animals to the altar And you can almost imagine in your mind the endless flow of blood from the altar. And perhaps this is why, in part, some have made the vital, crucial mistake of divorcing the Old Testament from the New Testament and seeing two books and two gods. And in the Old Testament, they say there's an angry, wrath-filled God. And in the New Testament, there's a wonderfully appeased and loving God. And of course, they they fall prey to the age-old heresy. Uh, of perhaps you might remember Marcion dividing the Old Testament and the New Testament, believing that there are two gods. We believe, of course, there is only one God, and that the fullness of His revelation is one revelation. But nevertheless, we do acknowledge the bloody nature, especially of the sacrificial system as it was divinely instituted in the Old Testament. And what was all of this blood to point out to the people of Israel, the only way to be reconciled with God is through the shedding of the blood. And yet that shedding of blood has ceased, having been fulfilled and realized by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whom all of those sacrificial animals in the Old Testament pointed forward to. And so we perhaps need to remind our minds and train our minds and train our children's minds and the next generation's minds that when even when they look at the simplicity of Reformed church architecture, uh, when they come into this meeting place and when they see the baptism font and, and when they see on the occasion of baptism that there is water, that they automatically, because they've been well-trained in biblical doctrine, think the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because it would be a grave offense if we would ever view the baptism font and not have at the very forefront of our minds and our hearts the sacrificial atoning work, atoning that covering the guilt of our sin in our minds and in our hearts. So our belief concerning the symbolism of Christian baptism is that the water symbolizes the shed blood of the one only mediator, Jesus Christ. And that that shed blood serves for spiritual cleansing, a spiritual cleansing which we are in desperate need of given the reality of our sin and even then the source of our sin, our very sinfulness. Now, of course, culture, and many also within the broad church, they would tell you that humanity is basically good. Perhaps 
Perhaps they would say humanity is flawed, but only because of negative examples. But you can even turn on a popular country song, and they will tell you that they believe that man is basically good. Well, as with all things, we need to test everything we hear according to the Word of God. And so you come to such a passage uh, as Colossians 2, and there you begin to study and you begin to learn why does this blood need to be shed? Because verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. There is this desperate need given the reality, the universal reality. All human beings, old, young, male, female, are conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all manner of miseries, yes, even to condemnation itself, unless, and thanks be to God that there is biblical warrant for that unless, unless they are born again, regenerated, spiritually renewed, made alive. But this spiritual cleansing that we all so desperately need is not to be attained by some of our own self-works of moralism. Now, boys and girls, have you ever gotten your hands really dirty? I mean, muddy dirty. Now, don't do this or you... I'll get in trouble with your moms and your dads, but I remember sometimes when I was a kid, my hands would be just filthy dirty. And, and my first instinct growing up was automatically to wipe them on my shirt. Well, you know that doesn't, that doesn't clean your hands. It just makes your shirt dirty. But sadly, that's what a lot of people try to do. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try to improve my life a little bit. I'll just try to try harder. And the hands of the soul are stained with the filth of sin, and you have people walking around, even, yes, in conservative Reformed churches, wiping, figuratively speaking now, their hands upon their own shirts, thinking, I'll try to make myself clean, but all it does is spreads the filth. And so you know that in order to get your hands clean, you need water. And in order to get the soul clean, you need the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if these words and if this illustration reaches the ears of anyone who's attempting to wash your own soul by your own works, it's not going to work. It's just going to spread the filth and increase the sense of guilt and shame. But we have the wonderful opportunity this evening to remind you that there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And the fountain is symbolized in baptism, and the fountain is Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And so that is the symbolism of Christian baptism. Now, what then in our second point of the significance? Now, what is the, the weight of this Christian baptism? Well, there is significance in regards to our relationship with the triune God and our relationship with the Christian church. Here again, we begin with God first. Christian baptism signifies that the person who receives baptism has a unique, special relationship with the one true triune God. And that's why there is the giving 
of the baptism formula in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, in the name, yes, certainly we we administer Christian baptism on the authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. But that, that phrase, in, it doesn't just symbolize the reality that we do this upon the authority of Christ, but it also signifies that baptism establishes a unique union, a unique relationship with the one true triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, This relationship we often refer to uh, as a covenant relationship or as the covenant of grace. Covenant being uh, a pact or a bond, but but don't ever think of the covenant of grace in, in kind of cold business term, but rather in a warm relationship of, of fellowship. And in the covenant of grace, and notice that it is all of grace, the triune God says to the individual who receives baptism, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And the Father says that, and the Son says that, and the Holy Spirit says that. So the Father says, I will be your Father. And the Son says, I will be your Savior, your Redeemer. And the Spirit says, I will be your Sanctifier, or I will be your Comforter. And if we start to grasp something of this, this ought to fill us with a sense of amazement. And think of it for a minute, boys and girls. The God who spoke all things into existence... The God who commands an innumerable company of angels says to you, I will be your God, and you will be my child because of my grace and because of my mercy. There are, of course, then innumerable benefits to that relationship including the Father's paternal care. Little children, when you're scared, maybe scared at night, and we haven't had a whole lot of Iowa thunderstorms this summer, uh, to which I'm somewhat disappointed because I really enjoy watching the thunder, I should say watching the lightning and hearing the thunder. But boys and girls, do you ever get scared when there's a thunderstorm? Where do you go? Do you go to your parents? And if, you're, if your father's there, doesn't it make you feel a little bit better? I mean, the thunder is still rumbling and the lightning's still flashing, but your father's there. Now, that's just a small little picture. Where does the child of God go when life presents them with the thunderings of afflictions and the lightnings of trials. I have my heavenly Father. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without His will. 
And when we sometimes through weakness fall in sin, what do we then do? We ought not despair, but we go to our Savior, the Son, Jesus Christ, who has promised, I will be your Savior. I will be your Redeemer. And the privilege also is ours when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the anxieties and the fears. And, and, and we're not going to fall into the lie of some idea of Christianity that Christians never have anxieties, doubts, and fears. The Bible's testimony won't allow us to do that. If we ever think for a moment that Christians don't have anxieties, doubts, and fears, then we haven't really read the book of the Psalms. There are the doubts and the fears and the anxieties and the trials, but we have this promise that the Holy Spirit says, I will be your comforter. Now, along with these wonderful obligations, of course, or with these wonderful benefits, of course, there are obligations. We are obliged to a new obedience. We are obligated to show forth our gratitude and our thanksgiving uh, unto the Lord our God uh, with a newness of life. Having been forgiven of our sins, uh, we ought to present the entirety of who we are and the entirety of what we have into His service. And and this brings us also to consider uh, the fact that we not only have a relationship with the triune God, but also baptism signifies that we have a a relationship with the Christian church. Because what is the church? The church is simply the gathered people of God. The church is not just a place to which people go to receive some type of spiritual benefit. The church is the people of God. And so if baptism signifies that a person has a special relationship with the triune God by virtue of the covenant of grace, he or she is not the only individual who has that relationship. There are many, many others. There are many, many other sons and daughters of Abraham, ultimately, of course, of Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves, by virtue of the truth that is signified in our baptism, united to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also then united to our spiritual brothers and our spiritual sisters. This privilege should not be overlooked that I belong to Christ, but therefore also belong to the Christian church. Now, so much has been said in recent sermons that we're going to try to avoid repeating everything that we've said about the doctrine of the church. But children, young people, middle-aged people, mature people, What a privilege it is to be a member of the Christian church. While some might be quick to say, you know she's not perfect, we well know that. But if Christ loved the church so much that he laid down his own life for her, should we who belong to Christ not highly value the church? You can't have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. 
and be consistent. Because if you have a high view of Christ, you will then have a high view of everything that Christ has a high view of. And does Christ have a high view of the church? Absolutely, so much so that he calls her his bride. And he loves her with a sacrificial love. And again, not with a spirit of haughty arrogance, but with a humble recognition of the reality of the antithesis. We ought to recognize that by virtue of being members of the covenant of grace and having been baptized in the Christian church, that we are set apart, uh, as our confession says, from alien religions and from those who do not acknowledge the one true God. And here I have to admit that, especially when I was younger, but still sometimes, I, I think, why well, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been something to be a member of the special forces in the military, to be a Navy SEAL? And I, and I, I suppose a lot of teenage boys have those moments, to be a Navy SEAL, or I was reading about World War II uh, just the other day and about the 101st Airborne Troopers. I mean, um, imagine being a paratrooper and having that, that badge. You could walk on base and say, I'm a paratrooper. I'm a member of the 101st. Or I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm set apart. I'm different. I'm distinct. You're a Christian. And you go throughout this life. You walk into the grocery store. You go to the school. You enter into Vermeer plant, whatever number plant you're in. You go to Palacorp, or as some of you more mature individuals call it, roll screen. And you can say with humility and yet confidence, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. I've been set apart. Well, who has been set apart? That's our third point, the subjects. Essentially, all members of God's covenant of grace are the subjects of Christian baptism. Uh, that includes all believers all those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now you'll notice, of course, that our Belgic Confession begins to deal with the Anabaptist false teaching that denied the validity of infant baptism. There will be other opportunities to lay out a more thorough biblical basis for Christian baptism, but if I could, I would give every single one of us the memorization of two passages that support the baptism of children born to those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is Genesis 17, verse 7, where God says to Abraham, the promise, what promise? The promise of the covenant of grace, the promise including the forgiveness of sins, the promise the Lord God says to Abraham is to you, but he doesn't stop there. And the heart of the covenant parent rejoices that the Lord continued and said, the promises to you, Abraham, and to your descendants after you. 
And that promise was the basis upon which circumcision was applied to the male infants of the covenant line. And that practice continued for hundreds of years. The only difference that takes place as covenant redemptive history transitions from the Old Testament prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the New Testament after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is that the shed blood of Jesus Christ has satisfied and brought to a conclusion to the fulfillment the bloody ritual of circumcision, and it has been replaced with the bloodless sacrament of baptism. So we no longer shed blood in the covenant community because the blood has been shed, but the promise is the same. And that's why the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 39 can simply echo Genesis 17 verse 7, and he can say in the New Testament era, the promise, that same promise. In Genesis 17, verse 7, and Acts 2, verse 39, uh, are the death kneel for any type of dispensationalism that would see all kinds of different plans of God in different eras. The promise, Peter says, is to you and to your seed, descendants, children after you. And in the long line of the Reformed churches, supported also by a statement such as 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 says, the children of even if there is only one believing spouse. And so it's certainly true also for two believing parents who present the child for baptism. The glorious truth that covenant parents have held to is that when they hold these little ones in their arms, that Jesus Christ also held little ones in His arms. And Receive them and bless them. Because to children also is promised the forgiveness of sins. It's not just for adults. Thanks be to God, it is for adults. But it's also for children. And they also are received as members of the Christian church. We understand that they are not mature members, but they are members. They are members by virtue of grace. They are members by virtue of the covenant of grace. And so, yes, we do become somewhat animated when someone challenges the practice of infant baptism just because we want to be right. Because our God has promised, I will be your God and the God of your children and the God of your grandchildren. Now notice that Guido de Bray doesn't say that he detests the Anabaptist. He says that he detests the heir of the Anabaptist. And so we also detest the heir of those who would withhold this glorious sacrament of baptism from children of believers. We close with a quote. Again, we referred to P.Y.D. Young. We cannot help but feel ashamed that too often our baptismal day is ignored by us. This past week, how often did you think of your baptism? Boys and girls, 
How often do you think of your baptism? Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. To the young people, if you ever find yourself struggling, wondering, who am I? Do I matter? You may not be, and hopefully you aren't, an influencer on social media. You don't have to be an influencer on social media. It doesn't matter how many likes or followers or whatever it is nowadays that you have. All of that, at the end of the day, is absolutely, completely pointless if you remember your baptism. I belong to Christ, and I belong to the Christian church. And when our life makes its way to the edge of time and eternity, what will really matter? You know, the Belgian Confession says, and rightfully so, that our baptism, it doesn't just profit us on the day of our baptism, but all our life. Now, rightly, properly understood, this is the way to leave time and enter into eternity. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I have been baptized. You have promised that you would be my God. And I have believed, and I have said, I will be your child. Now certainly, the external sacrament is not necessary, essentially necessary for baptism. You think of the repentant thief. But we're not repentant thieves. Imagine the glory of meeting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and saying, here I am, and I have been baptized. You are my God, and I am your son or your daughter. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed again at your goodness, especially as it is displayed in your grace and in your mercy. Father, we confess that at times so often we are ignorant of our identity we pray that you would open our eyes to who you are and who we are. We confess that so often, too, we forget about the reality of our baptism. But may it serve as a powerful antidote against temptation, and may it serve also as a powerful comfort in times of trial and affliction. Uh, and Lord, may we glorify you both now and forevermore for your covenant mercies shown unto us and to our children. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.